This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 41, Comic Reviews for the week of January the 2nd. And welcome to the show. This is episode 41 of Comic Shenanigans, and I'm your host, Adam Chapman. I'm a sometime comic reviewer for cgmagazine.ca, which is comics and gaming magazine, which is a Canadian magazine run out of Toronto, as well as uh, a former reviewer for cxpulp.com, which used to be comicstream.com. Thank you for joining us for episode 41. We're looking at comic reviews for the week of December, sorry, January the 2nd, 2013. I do have to apologize in advance for two things. First of all, this episode is going up on Monday, January the 7th, which is one day late from its uh, regular spot. Usually we put uh, put up episodes on the uh, on the Sunday. Unfortunately, uh, this leads into my second point. Uh, I'm actually a little under the weather right now. I'm kind of sick, so I apologize for my voice. I sound like I'm having a cold, and it's because I do. So there's going to be a lot of stop starting, which uh, the good part is you won't really notice that on your end, hopefully, if I do it uh, appropriately, because I'll have to, you know, take time out to sneeze and this kind of stuff and gross stuff. It's I live in Toronto, it's Canada, it's cold, it's, you're gonna get colds, this is just that time of year, and it sucks. Anyways, let's talk about some comics, because uh, a fair bit of stuff came out, um, because I've been ill, I haven't had a chance to read everything that came out, um, there's a lot of stuff, you know, it's interesting, when I've been going through all this week's comics, I kept thinking of last week's episode, uh, which was episode 39 that I did with my wife, uh, we were looking at comics that came out on December the 26th, and there was only, I think, five books that came out that week, of which four of them I give eight, eight or better, uh, for a review, and it made me think that, for me, perhaps an eight out of ten is kind of my middle, um, I mean, I guess theoretically speaking, five out of ten is 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 the average, right? I mean, but it, that seems low. That seems to be like a book that's, you know, almost not worth reading. Whereas I think an enjoyable experience, generally speaking, is probably going to land you between you know a seven and an eight because that's a book that you know it's a it's basically it's like a three and a half to a four out of five. It's a book that's not the greatest book I've ever read, but it's not bad. Um, so anyways, it, it kind of made me, uh, revisit as I was doing all my reviews this week and I was going through the ratings and I was, I was writing them all down. I realized that, uh, I give a lot of eights and it's cause generally speaking, I think I'm less critical. I used that I used to be, but maybe about three or four years ago when I was reading a lot of comics, uh, I still read a lot, but I just think, um, you know, I'm enjoying different types of comics in different ways that I didn't used to before. I'm a little, and I'll, I'll try and expand upon that as we kind of go through the books that came out because some of them, they're not necessarily great books, but I don't know. They they weren't they were they gave me an enjoyable experience, but um, they were they weren't the best comics that I've read either. But again, they didn't piss me off either. Or they what's almost worse is when I feel indifferent, when I don't care, when it doesn't really make me feel in any particular emotion. That's actually worse to me than a comic that makes me angry, because at least it, prom- it, it it provoked a response. And at the end of the day, like in all kinds of media, you want to have some sort of emotional response from your from your reader or your viewer, depending on the media. And if you feel nothing, then that's that's a failure to me. So let's jump right in. Uh, the first book we're going to look at this week is All New X-Men number 5. This book is written by Brian Michael Bendis with artwork by Stuart Eminen. Um It's a pretty good-looking book. I mean, I was talking about, I, I think on a, a prior episode, I was talking, I think it was the Potpourri, 2012 Potpourri episode, I was discussing this briefly with uh, my brother-in-law, Paul Scores, who's a guest, a regular guest on the show, and he's really been loving old new X-Men. I mean, Stuart Eminen is, is, is a fantastic illustrator, and he's been doing a great job on this book. Uh, Bendis has been doing a fairly good job of keeping it interesting. I... This issue felt like more of a letdown to me. It definitely, 
I guess the problem is is that this book is not the whole idea of having the original X Men come to the future. It's an ongoing thing, and the problem with that to me is that it does feel like more of a transitory thing. It feels like something that could be over and done with in one arc. And this is the new status quo for going forward that we're going to have these these original version of the X Men are going to be in current continuity. So this really is just set up, but. Instead of just having a setup issue, it's like five setup issues setting up a new status quo for now. That being said, it's not bad. It's it's actually a pretty good book. It's interesting. You have um, I, I like the concept that Beast is a character that constantly is evolving. They have you know there's the classic rendition of him being oversized but ape like, and then him being. Uh, blue fur, well, gray first, but then blue fur, and then him being this cat version, and now we get a new version in this book. Uh, to be honest, I thought the illustration on the new evolved form was actually pretty terrible. To be honest, I, I just felt it—it it left me feeling totally cold and, and not really like like as much as the old one had Wolverine's hairstyle. It was at least a very specific look, and now it just feels like. Like, I don't know what other illustrators are going to make this look like, because I don't know really what this looks like. like. He's obviously bigger than his younger self. He's more hulking. He's He's got a weird kind of nose. And I, I just... It's like a... It, he has more in common with his old rendition, but I didn't really like it. Um, this issue, the main focus is on... Well, two things, but... You have Jean Grey kind of get, getting a tour of Beast's inner psyche and realizing more about herself, exploring her own powers, and then finally making the decision that she's staying in the present and she wants the rest of the X-Men to stay with them so they can try and fix what fix everything in the current continuity so that then they can go home and get their minds wiped, which is actually an interesting concept and not one I'm against. Uh, it's actually an interesting way of giving them a purpose uh, that they, that there is a reason for them to be here, and then also allowing them, whenever this story plays itself out, to go home and that be it, and and to not feel like it meant nothing, because um, it's what happens in the present that matters, and not what they do per se, like not really their memories that matter, because they won't end up having them anyway, which is an interesting way of tackling it for sure. I also like the concept of uh, Scott Summers putting together his own new X-Men and his own new school. Uh, my only issue with this is that we're having to, there's too many X-Books. you got Wolverine the X-Men, which is very quirky, but it's doing its own completely different thing. And then you're going to have this team of time-displaced mutants with Kitty Pry, Professor K, or uh, I guess Professor P, depending on I guess Professor P would be Professor Pride. Um, or Professor Kitty, it sounds better. But them basically trying to figure out how to kind of change and fix what's gone wrong with Scott and stuff. But then you also have a, a, the upcoming Uncanny X-Men, which is going to be about Scott's team. Well, this book so far has been about Scott's team as well. So I feel like there's too many quote-unquote flagship X-Books. It used to be there was Uncanny X-Men and X-Men a long time ago. And they had all those other X-Books, yeah, but the two core X-Men books were those. And then eventually you would end up having like, uh, Astonishing, which was definitely the flagship during its tenure, and you still had Uncanny, and you still had X-Men. Then X-Men became X-Men Legacy, then you eventually got another Ejectiveless X-Men, and it just became that there's so many X-Books that none of, none of them is really the flagship. Now, this all-new X-Men is intended to be the flagship, but then when you also have Wolverine and the X-Men, which is a pretty important part of the X-Universe, and you also have all the X-Forces, which are closer connected to the X-Men than they used to be back in the Cable days. And then you've also got the the upcoming Uncanny X-Men. There's just so many X-Books. 
It's almost too much. No, it is too much. There's no almost about it. Um, that being said, no, this was an enjoyable issue. Great artwork by Stuart Eminem. I'm not a huge fan of the new redesign for Beast, but it is what it is. I like the idea that he consistently is evolving. So it's been like 10 years since uh, he turned into Cat Beast. Why not change him? I mean, I know, I know a lot of people don't like Cat Beast. So, and I, it took me a long time to kind of be okay with it. And partially because there's so many varying ways of illustrating cat bees. Some have done a terrible job, and some have done a magnificent job, which, to be fair, is probably the same as, as the ape beast. I mean, some people, the classic rendition, the, the blue, some people did a terrible version and, and never got the look right, or they just made them look too much like Wolverine with the, just different colors. Um, so at least he'll be more distinct, but it kind of reminded me more of uh, the brute in some ways, but the proper color instead of the green, because the brute was uh, a heavily mutated version of Hank, uh, Hank McCoy from the Mutant X book from the late, late 90s. So, no, overall, I mean, I gave this an 8 out of 10. Big surprise there, right? I'm sure you're not surprised at all. Uh, next up is Batman Incorporated number 6. This is actually a really strong book. I'm not a fan of Grant Morrison on Batman, although I have to say I've enjoyed everything that he's done, I guess, since Batman Incorporated, although I didn't like the concept of Batman Incorporated the first time. Uh, overall, it's been alright, and I like I like how this book, Batman Incorporated itself, in the New 52 has been going. I found it really enjoyable uh, for the most part, although I'm not a huge fan of the artwork by, uh, I guess, Chris Burnham. Um, but this is an interesting tale of a father a father and a mother fighting for their, their, their child, basically. And then all sorts of other things going on at the same time. Uh, it's a there's it's a very complex issue, but I mean it's an action packed issue. You really have uh, Batman kind of being stripped stripped to the core, trying to figure out how he can fight Talia, and and it just it's it's really action packed. It, it feels like a movie, and seeing uh, the the robotic Batman, which really reminded me of the Bat Centuries from. Um, Kingdom Come was actually pretty cool, too. There's some messed up touches in here, and the idea that, you know, Batman has to basically kill Gotham, or give a, it's basically the choice is Gotham or his son, and uh, that the third Batman from the Nightmare is not what everyone thinks it was. Um, just an interesting... The artwork, again, doesn't quite work for me, and the, the last page is confusing as well. Uh, it, at times, it's a little too weird and, and stylistic, the artwork, but... Overall, this book, it definitely has a unique voice, both artistically and well, both in the artwork and in the story. So it sets itself apart because there are so many Batman books, so many. And yet this one feels like it has its own identity. And, you know, this one has an end date. I don't know if they're continuing the book after uh, Grant Morrison's done. But at least this story, this feel, this tone of the book ends when Grant Morrison's done. Because he, he has this this mega story that's been running since he started on the book. So I appreciate that this book has its own authorial, uh, authorial, authoritative... Wow, I'm having trouble today. I'm sorry, everyone. Its own authoritative voice. Because, and this is something I've noticed again, ever since I've been doing the podcast and doing and reading a lot more books than I used to, just so I could try and give more of a, an impact on the different books that are being published. One thing I've started to notice is that uh, I'm impressed with Batman because although he has a lot of different books, it seems like they are starting to be able to differentiate themselves more and more from each other. Um, even when you have major crossovers, they have unique tones to them. And at the end of the day, 
that's what you want. I mean, you want each book to have its own voice and a reason to exist. Um, that was the problem with Spider-Man back in the day. They had Amazing Spider-Man, Spectacular, uh, Web of, and Ejectibus. And at times, there was no real... You had Spectacular was the classic underdog. It was always the secondary book. But then you had other books, like Web of Spider-Man never got enough respect. It predated the Ejectibus, but because the Ejectibus had the bigger star power to begin with, because it had McFarlane and then Larson... Um, and then even Time Lyle, it had more of a consistent tone, whereas you had Web of Spider-Man, always felt like this, this kind of the, the lame one. It was it was always the Ulceran. It was always even though there was four books and it wasn't the the youngest, it always felt like the most dispend, um, expendable. And along those lines, when it hit issue one twenty nine and they canceled all the books and replaced them for two months with uh, Scott Spider books, it was the only one that didn't come back. They relaunched it as Sensational Spider-Man. So just an interesting bit of. Of history there. I know no one cares about this, but I do, so screw everyone. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, so I gave this an 8 out of 10. Um, again, not a big shock. Next up is an, yet another 8 out of 10, but I thought... Uh, it's interesting. They're both 8 out of 10s for different ways. I thought Batman Incorporated had a pretty strong story. You know what? Maybe I should downgrade it to a 7, because I wasn't a huge fan of the artwork. Whereas Batman The Dark Knight had really good artwork, but a really intense story, which I really enjoyed. Dark Knight continues the creepy dark, um, the creepy scarecrow storyline that's been running in this book for a few issues now, which actually feels like it's been going on for a while. Um, but uh, what made this issue so strong was more about Batman's resolve. Uh, this is a, an issue which, to be honest, not a lot really happens. Batman figures out that he has the antibodies in his system to help cure everyone from this new uh, virus that Scarecrow has unleashed on Gotham. But the only way to do it is basically to give blood and have it diffuse and uh, diffuse over everyone who's been affected into this special... I forget what they call it, but... Anyways, this uh, this item which will disperse this everywhere. But the problem is, is that he's going to be strapped into the Batplane and basically it's going to be putting him almost on death's door so that he can save his city. It's extremely tense as an issue. And I really... I don't think that Robin was necessarily written um, in keeping with his his regular depiction in the other books, mainly Batman Incorporated and Batman and Robin, but I loved how he was still written, which is an interesting dichotomy, um, in that it didn't really fit, but it still made sense, because you have him making a promise to Batman... That he'll, you know, he won't, he won't let him come home until he's done the job, even if it kills him. Um, that being said, not a lot, again, really happens in the issue per se, but it's so thrilling, you feel like you're watching a movie. Because, and it, like, I think, to be honest, I think I had the Dark Knight Rises soundtrack in, uh, on when I was reading a lot of my comics this week, because I was just like, well, I, I want to read something to kind of keep me awake, keep me alert, because I am tired, and I am sick, so... I was listening to the Dark Knight Rises soundtrack, and it really fit well, obviously, because I'm reading a Batman book, and it felt really appropriate, but uh, this is a really, really good read, and then even the ending is extremely uh, tragic in its own way, like, the Scarecrow, and, and funny, the Scarecrow has his plan, he's got the most vile toxin he has, and he's gonna, he's gonna engineer his escape, but as he's thrown into a cell, it, it, it activates his canister, and he's locked into this the cell and basically he's going crazy because he sees the scariest things he can imagine and uh it's kind of a really creepy but fitting in i'm not a huge fan of the new depiction of him and always looking like he's vomiting and it's kind of grotesque but i guess to be honest that is the point and that's what greg Hurwitz is trying to do is he's trying to make you have more of a visceral reaction towards a character that is creepy and scary and so it's about he's all about 
really scaring you to your core. That's all. That's Scarecrow's raison d'etre, to be honest. So, um, an interesting way of doing it. Uh, Finch's artwork is really dirty here, though. Um, it's not the strongest I've ever seen his artwork. He's done better than this. This is not David Finch's best work. It felt rushed. Um, it just, it felt muddied. It was still good. It was, st- and there were some panels like there's a panel with uh, Batman. And he's lying in the bat plane as it's kind of flying over the city. And it's all hooked up to everything as it's pumping his blood out. Really, really cool visuals. But that, and that was a good panel. But some of the stuff was really kind of muddy and not his best work. And it was kind of disappointing. Overall, though, again, to the surprise, this is an 8 out of 10 book. It was an enjoyable read. Um, it ended a little easily in some ways. But the main, the main brunt of the issue was... How far will Batman go to save his city? And that, if that, that's the story they wanted to tell. And that's this wasn't as much about him taking on the Scarecrow because that was that was kind of um, the, over before you knew it. Most of the issue is more about the resolve that Batman has and putting himself through hell to save his city because that's what Batman does, and that's what this story was about. And it told a, it was a good way of doing that. So I gave that an eight out of ten, and I feel like it was richly deserved. Next up is Blackacre number two. Now, this is a, an image book. Um, I enjoyed the first issue. It had an interesting setup. It was a futuristic sci-fi story. Basically, there's um, a lot of money was put into creating this society known as Blackacre, and everything else is kind of, and everything else in the world just kind of went to hell. Um, and there's someone I they left the basically the compound, and he's in the wild, and they are sending this highly trained man to go bring this guy home. Uh, and they give this guy a tracking device so that he can be picked up. However, as we found out at the end of the first issue, it's actually an explosive, and it will kill. It has a huge radius, so basically they're they're planning on killing the man who this uh, one of the operatives who's been sent out to locate. Um, this is written by. Let me just pull up the uh, details here. This is written by Duffy Boudreau with pencils by Wendell Cavalcanti um, with colors by Antonio Favela. Um, this issue, I didn't enjoy nearly as much as the first. The issue felt really, first issue felt really strong with, uh, the, the premise, whereas this one, it felt like it was lacking a bit, and we have the explosion a lot faster than I thought we would, and I guess my issue with this book more is that the first issue set up a definite course, and then this issue felt more like, I don't know where we're going with this, because he's already, like, he's already triggered the device, it's already blown up, is he gonna go home now, now that he knows he's People tried to kill him and the other person. Um, like, is someone going to come after them because it's too early for him to have found them? So what's happened with the device? Uh, I just found, like, I had a lot more questions here that weren't necessarily constructive. Like, it wasn't asking, making me ask good questions. It was making me wonder more about the longevity of the book and where the story was going and not necessarily in a productive way. The artwork's not bad, and the story isn't bad either. It's just... It, it didn't really. It didn't grab me nearly as strong as the first one. The, the first one was a really strong uh, premise and it had a really great launch. And it just it felt like it was going to be a really cool book. I mean, the Image has been releasing a ton of really enjoyable books recently, and and I thought this was the next major one. And it really failed to captivate me. The story was. I don't, we we introduced more characters, but. I don't think there's again a lot of longevity to them, and I don't. It, it also it didn't make me care about the protagonist all that much either. Whereas the last issue did, uh, or at least it made me care more. So 
this was a bit of a failure. I, I gave it more of a six out of ten. It was still technically good, but it, or at least uh, average or average plus. But I, it didn't mo- uh, motivate me more to. I don't care as much about reading the next issue, and I wasn't that entranced or captivated by the story in general. So unfortunately, it just it didn't really work for me. Uh, the next issue that we're going to look at is Daredevil End of Days number four. Um, I'm going to say up front, this was actually one of the more enjoyable issues in the series so far. Um, obviously, my complaint over the last three issues has been that I've basically been reading Daredevil, Daredevil's version of Citizen Kane. And I love Citizen Kane. It's my favorite movie of all time. I didn't need to read this. And I thought that this Bendis could have done better. And I felt like at times, we, of course, it's a Ben York story. Like, it just felt like... I wanted it to be a Daredevil story first, and not Ben Urich piecing together the final day, you know, final days of, of Daredevil's life. That's less interesting to me, and it felt, in some ways, too easy because, like, we always get the Ben Urich story. Like, it's not like we haven't gotten some great Ben Urich stories over the years where, you know, he's he, where it's from his perspective, and yet we get those constantly. Not as much over the last few years because we've had Mark Wade just kind of revolutionize the Daredevil run, and he's kind of made it so that Ben Urich's not around. But Ben Yurick has been used to death, and I just this book doesn't give me a lot new. Now, this that being said, this issue was much better because it felt much more basically creepy and upsetting in its own way. Like Bullseye is found dead, um, and the way he goes out is kind of fascinating in its own way. And we don't we still don't know what this last what the word means the mapone. Um, I do like that the, like. Ben Yurik's kind of desperate nature. Um, him, his interactions with Turk were interesting. Him finding like the girl that um, Bullseye dresses up as Elektra and threatens her and then kills himself. That was actually really interesting because they, it's a great callback to Daredevil 181 where he keeps saying, like, you know, you're good, but I'm magic. And that's what he says when he kills Elektra the first time. And so I found that really, really cool callback. Um, at the end of the issue, we, we, we have Frank Castle, and uh, I'm interested to see what his part of this will be. Um, overall, this issue felt like it turned a good corner. We're halfway through the story. Now we're, we're into the, the back half. There's two issues left. This was a much more enjoyable book. It felt like it, it really uh, engaged me as a reader, and I, I wanted to mo- know more. As much as I'm not a huge fan of it being another Ben Yurik story, and that the last few issues have just kind of felt like a this is your life, Daredevil, mixed in with Citizen Kane, this issue felt like we got more. And I got more of an intriguing story, so finally Bendis is giving me more to bite into. Um, so as a Daredevil fan and a Bendis fan, this was this gave me a lot more that I could enjoy. And I guess that was my, my main complaint up till now, is that it felt like a greatest hits without really giving me a lot of new things. Uh, and it's supposed to be an end of days story. It's supposed to be mean something. So I just I realized I just made a mistake. This is actually an eight part miniseries. There's still four parts. So now I'm I'm questioning what I just said because as much as I thought the next two issues might be packed, if we're only halfway through, it makes me wonder um, what the hell we're we gonna do because we're only just reaching the midpoint now. That changes a lot of my perspective on it actually, and that's interesting. The length of a miniseries can change how you view it. So I thought it was a five-issue mini, uh, sorry, a six-issue miniseries. So I thought we were almost done, and now I realize we're actually only halfway through. So that changes how I view it. That being said, I still enjoy the issue. I'm a little bit less excited about the next four issues because we're only halfway done. Uh, this was written by Brian Michael Bendis and by David Mack, and the pencils were done by Klaus Jensen with the finished art, so mainly the inks, mainly by Bill Sinkovich. 
And the uh, page five, the artwork is by Alex Believe. I wish he'd done this book. He should have been the artist on this book. It should not have been Klaus Janssen. Nothing against Klaus Janssen, but Maliev and Bendis are a, a, an absolutely fantastic pair. Their Daredevil run was legendary, and one of like the hallmark runs in that for that character. He it really brought that character. Like Kevin Smith brought the character back from almost obscurity because it it was not a very good book when Kevin Smith relaunched it in the late late 90s. However, since then, there have been some really high-profile runs. You had an amazing day, um, stuff, like there was some great David Mack stuff, some Bendis stuff, and then you had that um, relatively forgettable story by Bob Gale, and then you had the amazing Brian Michael Bendis and Alice Believe run, followed up by an even, not even better, but just as exemplary Brian, uh, Ed Brubaker run, and then then after that, Andy Dickel kind of ran into the ground before Mark Wade took up the baton and decided, I'm going to twirl this around in a fun, jaunty manner and not as serious as we used to for the last 10 years. Um, so, anyways, I give this an 8 out of 10. I'm interested to see where we go from here. Hopefully this will be a good book, and hopefully the next four issues won't drag on, but I'm a little bit wary that they will drag on, and that's not a good thing. Moving right along, the next book on our list today is Flash number 15. Um, not a huge fan of this book in general. Oh, sorry. That's, sorry, that was a lot more damning than I meant it to be. Um, not a huge fan of this issue is more what I meant. Uh, the artwork is different because it's not done by the regular team. I just felt like the story was really spinning its wheels. Uh, we got a bunch of pages at the end, which, although artistically are quite gorgeous, um, they didn't do much to advance the story at all. Um, and that I found to be kind of a problem um, when I read this issue. Is just, I don't want to be feeling like we're just kind of uh, spinning our wheels. We're not really getting to the point, but that's exactly what it feels like. That being said, like I'm looking at the issue right now, and so we got the artwork is done by. Let me just double check who did the art because it was a split job. It wasn't all by uh, by the same creative team because the first half of it is by one team, and then you get into a certain spot. And then the art changes. Here we go. Um, so this was part three of, of Guerrilla Warfare. The script and cover by Francis Manipal and Brian Bucciolato. Art by Marcus Toe and Ryan Wynn. Pages 1 to 11. Pages 12 to 20 by Francis Manipal. Now, now that I realize that, holy crap. I did not realize that Francis Manipal did, issue, did pages 12 to 20. Why do I say holy crap? Why does that surprise me? Because... Well, that's a lot of pages where nothing really happens. I mean, it's gorgeous. Don't get me wrong. You're getting glimpses of what could happen in the future and what and what should. The uh, the last page, of, not the last page, but the sec the last splash page of the issue, is a gorgeous, gorgeous spread of. It just says it's basically it's 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 panel work, but it's actually saying the Flash. And so I mean, like, there's some really ar- great artistic stuff going on here, and it's. And it, the the previous pages are, are a way of showing that um, the past and present, all these different kind of realities are, are mixing together as opposed to what could happen. And that's interesting, but it doesn't really move the story along that much. Uh, the idea that, like, you know, Patty knows who uh, Barry Allen is now, that he's the Flash, and that he's alive. You have Grodd needing more speed force. Uh, you have the, the rogues kind of doing their best to kind of fight for their city against the gorillas. I like seeing them in a heroic way. Um... I don't know. I mean, it, it was it, it wasn't bad. I mean, 
it wasn't a bad read by any means, but it, it also left a little bit to be desired because it, not a lot was really happening. and not, In terms of story progression, there wasn't much going on. And that's, I guess, more of my problem. So that's why I was, I was really only going to give it maybe like a 6.5 or a 7 out of 10 because... Partially because of the artistic inconsistency. Not that Marcus Toe is a bad artist, but he's nowhere near the level of Francis Manipal. Manipal is on his game, when, which he is at certain points in here. He is gorgeous line work. Like, and Bucciolato's colors on top look absolutely magnificent. So Marcus Toe does a good job, but he pales in comparison to the, the real draw for the book is Manipal, and he's not illustrating the entire issue. And because he does a bunch of sequences that are splash pages, which are really cool to look at, but they're not moving the story along. So this is part three of a story, which, to be honest, I wasn't a huge fan of it to begin with because I kind of feel like they need to be, instead of going into these longer form storylines, I think we need to get more kind of on pace with who is the Flash, how does he operate in the city, because there's a lot of questions I still have. And there hasn't been a, like, even though this is issue 15, it feels like if you actually ask me to sit down and say how many stories have been told in Flash so far, or how many villains, and how do they kind of work out, no, that being said, maybe I couldn't do this for any books. Who knows? But I definitely would have a problem with Flash because it all kind of mixes together and there's not a lot of variation or uh, distinction between the different storylines. So that's kind of a problem. So that's why I ended up giving it eh, six and a half, seven. I'll say six and a half. Um, the inconsistency in the visuals, uh, even though they tried with the colors to make it a consistent tone, it was still a little jarring because you go from... You know, good art to amazing art. Uh, at least it didn't go the other way around, in fairness. If you started with uh, Manipole and then with the toe, it might be more more disturbing, more of a kind of a, a hiccup in the reading experience as opposed to going the other way. At least you're going from good to great and not great to good because that'd be more jarring, I think. Um, so next up is Iron Man number five. So this is kind of the putting a cap on the current... I'm going to call it Armor Wars 3, but really it's Extremist Wars, but it's... It's not, it doesn't feel like it's really uh, got a, like, sorry, I'm not speaking in good words at all. It doesn't really feel like Kieran Gillen has a clear handle on how he wants to write Tony yet. Um, and Greg Land, I still don't think is the right choice artistically because um, there's just a lot of inconsistency in the different panels and the way Tony looks and the facial expressions. And then you have some panels where nothing will change at all because he's basically using the exact same image. And then others where some things are changing and it's kind of shifting. Um, his detail on the, on the armor is kind of generic and not as strong as it could be. Um, I do think this is one of the stronger chapters that Gillen has put in so far. And this is where, where I started to get more of a sense of this is how Gillen wants to write Tony. Um, is, is this guy who's seen so much and yet want, he, he needs to think bigger, kind of in, in line with how the Avengers have to be bigger and Hickman's run in the Avengers. Um, Tony has other challenges and other things he needs to do. An idea that he's kind of looking to space to kind of reinvigorate himself to be more inspired uh, is kind of, it makes it more sense. The only problem with this is that we kind of already got this lead up. Like, isn't that exactly what Invincible Iron Man's run-up was supposed to be? Didn't it end with him basically leaving to go to space? Yet here, we have five issues at the end of the fifth issue. He's like, I'm going to go into space. Now he's going with the Guardians of the Galaxy? I thought that was the point of what we got, the Invincible Iron Man run, how it ended. So I, that kind of bugged me as a... Now, if you just jumped on Iron Man from Marvel Now, I think you'd probably enjoy this a lot more, especially because like of the most famous storylines that Iron Man's participated in over the last 10 years, Extremis is one of them. So they're banking on, you've read Extremis, you may not have read any of the other stuff, you know what, that's fine, you can just jump in with Marvel Now, and as long as you know about Extremis, you have enough working knowledge to kind of move forward from there. And I can see where they're going. Unfortunately, Marvel Now at times isn't as concerned about the diehards. 
or the fans who have already been reading all these books because they're like, well, they'll probably continue reading Iron Man, so that's not as big a problem. We need to get people to read Iron Man, though, and that's more of the problem. People who haven't already been reading it, so... Um, that being said, as much as the artwork was kind of generic, I found the script was really strong because it really felt like Tony was at, was actually conflicted. Whereas the last few issues have kind of felt, kind of wrote, you know, he goes over here, he has an encounter with an extremist enhanced in some way, and he wins. This felt more like a, it didn't really feel like a true victory, which is the point. He didn't really win. He kind of, it made him look at himself. It made him re-examine his own life and kind of want to push himself in different batteries. So I found that much more fascinating as a result. Um, the artwork, again, not not the biggest fan. I used to love Greg Land. Um, if you go back to his days on a sojourn when he was working with CrossGen, I thought he was a lot better. He's, I think his artwork has become less, more stagnant now. And it's, it, I feel like he used to actually... This is going to sound really mean and damning, but I felt like he was putting more effort into it and trying more, and now it feels like there's less creativity and less effort, and it just kind of feels more generic and, and almost by rote, like paint by numbers, and that's kind of why this wasn't an 8. I gave it a 7.5 because although the script was so strong, actually, you know, to be honest, it's more of a 7 because the artwork just drags it down. Uh, it was still, it's not bad artwork. It's just, it's lacking something, whereas the script felt like Gillen finally said, this is what I want to do with Tony Stark, this is how I want to write him, this is where we're going to go with this. And I felt more excited by that, even though I was a little bothered by the redundancy of the fact that we already kind of got this kind of story at the end of Invincible Iron Man. But at least we're now getting a clear sense of this is where this book wants to go. And we didn't have bad stories the last few issues. Um, it just felt very reminiscent of Armor Wars, and that kind of bugged me. But that's only because I'm an old, well, not old, but I'm a crotchety comic book fan who loves continuity and likes to complain. But really, aren't old comic book fans kind of the same? Anyway, moving on, um, we have, uh, let's see, what else did I look at this week? Uh, We have Manhattan Projects number eight. So that is a great book. Um, It felt very different, though, from every other issue. Um, The first seven... They all had a certain pattern. They all had uh, flashbacks. This is the first issue to not have flashbacks. So we have none of the distinctive uh, blue and red flashbacks that have dominated the series as of late. Not as of late, since its inception. Um, This is a great, great book, though. Uh, This is by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Nick Patara, and colors by Jordi Belair. Um, If you have not read this book, you should pick up The First Trade, which is available. It came out a few months ago. It collects the first five issues. And it can easily pick up issues 6, 7, and 8, the 350 each. Um, absolutely fantastic how Hickman writes this. It's interesting that this book did come out the same week as New Avengers number 1, which also features an Illuminati. And it, you can kind of see similarities in certain ways, but this is basically the Illuminati of the, I guess, the 1950s reign right now, or I guess 60s. Anyways, of this era kind of coming together, working together with the FDR AI and deciding the people of the Manhattan Project and Star City are too powerful. They will not listen to the governments. We have to shut them down. This is probably the only book in the world where you'll find Albert Einstein holding like a, basically an assault rifle or a machine gun or something. He has so much ammo strapped to him. You'd think he was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I, I think it's so cool because it's... You don't ever think of Einstein that way, which is what kind of what makes it more interesting. You have Richard Feynman, great detail here by Nick Patara, but he's he's shooting his gun, but he's not looking because he he doesn't really want to be looking. Like he he doesn't like that he's using guns, and it's just really interesting. Um, and having the FDR AI turn on them is 
really fascinating. And this is really Werner von Braun's issue to really shine. Although there, there are a lot of really good spotlights here. Like you have um, Yuri Gagarin is fascinating here because he's different from everyone else. He believes himself to be a hero, whereas everyone else believes that there's no such thing, that there's science, and they're doing what, what they have to do for science. Whereas he, he's driven by some sort of nobility, which sets him apart from everyone else in this book. Um, Werner von Braun really pays the price in this. I'm interested to see how they're going to rebuild them coming forward. Um, there's, there's just, this is just a magnificent book. There's so many little touches. Um, there's a shot when they, um, the Illuminati secure the doorway, um, or the door. And, uh, you see the E equals MC squared and the MC squared is, um, is scratched out. It just says up yours. And I actually kind of wonder, is it the luchador who did it or is it actually, uh, the, uh, the Albert Einstein who's not as smart uh, from a parallel universe because he couldn't come up with it. I, I It didn't actually say which one it was, but I kind of like that concept. Um, the artwork, as I said, is, is always gorgeous. Uh, this issue, unfortunately, was delayed. Uh, who knows when issue 9 will come out, but this is such a great book. If you're not reading this and you're a fan of Jonathan Hickman, you're making a mistake. And this is some of uh, Nick Patara's best artwork because it's not... Although this issue is more action-driven, he's not necessarily the best action illustrator, although he does a great job here. Um, whereas for some of those zany concepts that have been going on in this book so far, he's done a marvelous job at really bringing it all to life and really infusing it with this weird energy, which really is just so fun to, to look at. This is an 8 out of 10 every time. 8 out of 10 for issue number 8 of Manhattan Projects. Well-deserved. We've reached the halfway point, as we're now halfway through, I guess, the amount of issues we'll be reading today, or talking about today. Uh, next up is Morbius, The Living Vampire, number one. This was a disappointment. Um, it's an interesting concept in terms of how Keating has decided to write this. I just didn't necessarily find it one I needed to read. Um, I don't know, I just felt like this would be more about the character kind of trying to cure himself, and... Uh, I felt it could be sim- more similar in tone to 699.1, and instead I just found it, it was just odd. And Morbius himself didn't feel like he was really written all that right. Um, like, he felt oddly out of character. Uh, this just didn't feel like Morbius. This felt like someone else. And that kind of prevented it from being as good a, as a read as I wanted it to be. Um, just because it, it was just odd. Like, you have Morbius just kind of in plain clothes, fighting some people and like trying to like kind of being more heroic uh i just don't see the point of this i don't see the point of this book this is about joe keating or keating i don't know how to pronounce that with artwork by richard elson who uh did the um amazing spider-man 698 which you'll actually be able to hear us talk more about by my guests nathan struck and paul score as we go through it in episode 44 uh hopefully coming out on the 15th of january uh which is which is our spotlight on spider-man dying wish um, episode, so you you want to look forward to that. That being said, uh, this was kind of generic. It didn't. There's some kind of interesting parts in terms of the story and how Morbius is written and and uh, the narration at the beginning and like the facts about vampires, etc. But you know, on the whole, I just I didn't care. This didn't really engage me. This made me feel more indifferent. Um, I just I wasn't a big fan of where they're going with it. Maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I. This book needs to have a greater sense of what it wants to do, where it wants to go, and its identity, not just for the character, but for, for the book. And I felt like it lacked that. And in a number one issue, you have to be able to grab them. You have to be able to grab people. If you can't, you're you're potentially losing that reader. And you almost lost me, Marvel. Like, I, I almost enjoyed 699.1 more than this. This just felt like it was aimless, kind of flailing about, 
you know, like, I don't know where I want to go, so I don't, I'm not going to decide on a direction yet. It could have been much more than it was. I give this a 6 out of 10. Uh, speaking of books, that could have been a little bit more than what they were. Uh, that brings me to New Avengers number one. I was really excited about this book. I'm still excited. This first issue, uh, it wasn't it wasn't the greatest way to set it up. Um, it starts off with a kind of a recap of how Black Panther refused to join the original Illuminati. Uh, I like that we got that recap. Um, the artwork here is by Steve Epting with inkers by inks by Rick Magyar with Steve Epting on inks as well. Color colors by Frank Darmada, uh, or sorry Darmada, and then uh, the writing is of course by Jonathan Hickman. Um, not his strongest issue. Uh, I really like the the way that it focuses on Black Panther um, and on his people. The only thing that didn't work for me here is that it just felt a little, it felt a little too weird. And I'm I'm guessing it's connect. It may or may not be connected to what's going on in Avengers. But you have like another world and some destruction and this the youths of uh, Wakanda, the future, their future, their brightest minds are kind of destroyed. And it, it makes Black Panther freak out enough that he calls in the Illuminati. And he's basically saying, like, you know, God, may, may the Panther God forgive me for what I'm about to do, putting my trust in these men. It's a long setup issue. I like the setup. I just wanted more, I, I wanted it to jump more into the meat. And it was an interesting counterpoint to Avengers number one. Avengers number one just jumped right in there with a lot of big, crazy ideas and just kind of said, we're doing this. This is Avengers. This is bigger, better. We're going for it. This issue, I thought we'd have more of the crazy concepts right away. Instead, we have a little bit more of a setup that to set up why Black Panther does this, which is important. I just feel like I cut it down a little bit quicker. So it didn't necessarily get as much done as I would have expected, especially from Jonathan Hickman. That being said, I'm still excited to see what happens in the book. Excellent artwork by Steve Epting. Um, I I really like the last page when the Illuminati is coming to meet him, meet, sorry, meet Black Panther. Um, that alone made me excited for the next issue. I'm excited to see where he goes with this and how he uses the Illuminati and how Beast factors in and how that will end up operating. Uh, this could this could be a really strong book. Um, if anyone should be writing these characters in this kind of setting, it is Jonathan Hickman. So hopefully he's able to meet uh, rise to the expectations that readers have. And I, I really hope he does because this, this has a tremendous potential. So I give that an 8 out of 10. Regardless of the, the pacing problems, I still felt myself engaged and enjoying it. Although I do recognize it could have been done a little bit quicker and it didn't have to take as as much time and as many pages as it did to kind of get what d- got done done, if that makes any sense. Because I think my, my speech is kind of running away from me now that I'm feeling more sick. So I apologize to the viewers, sorry, readers at home, the listeners. Oh my God, what's wrong with me today? Um, next up is Red Lanterns number 15. I have not followed this book that much, although I have been reading the last few issues because of the Rise of the Third Army. There's really not much of a connection to the Rise of the Third Army in this issue. That being said, I really enjoyed this, uh, although the, the the cover really has nothing to do with the book. Uh, Blease doesn't really do much of anything like this. You do see Blease come to Earth with uh, the other human Red Lantern as he wants to confront the reason for his rage so that he can become a full Red Lantern. A lot of this issue is... Um, spent on Atrocitus, facing basically the the demons of the past. He's going up against the Manhunters in a vision, and that's the only reason why this issue isn't as strong as it could be. Because it's really cool, but it just feels like it's so extended, and just keeps going on and on and on. 
And after after a while, I'm just like, just get over it. Like, just move on. Like, Milligan spends so much time with him facing down these manhunters and not doing anything else with this his story. When there's other interesting avenues for the story to take, and we could have gone through any of those, but it is what it is. It was written by Peter Milligan, art by Miguel Sepulveda, with colors by Ram Burrito. He does actually some really really good colors here. Uh, keeps it dark but vibrant. Um, I gave this book a 7 out of 10 because the artwork was really strong, but the story was a little bit middling, and it meandered a lot, actually. It, sl- it slowed the, the pacing down of this book. Uh, more could have been done, uh, I feel. Especially, where is this Rise of the Third Army? This is the worst crossover I've ever heard of. It is not, it's, it's like a non-crossover, and that's usually a good thing, but not here. I do feel like it's only a matter of time until this book gets cancelled, but, you know, it's not bad for what it is. I mean, I... I read the first few issues and I didn't like it, but the last few issues have been strong. In fact, in some cases, stronger than some of the Green Lantern books. So, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. It's it's not the greatest book, but, I mean, it's still fairly strong. It's probably one of the better uh, titles during this crossover because it's, again, this is such a weird crossover. I don't understand what the point of it is. Um, uh, as I said, non-crossovers sometimes are a good thing. This just feels like you're throwing a tagline on it, and it means nothing, and the characters involved are boring. Like, these Third Army is what some of the most boring antagonists I've ever seen. So, I just didn't care much for that, but... And again, this issue felt like it could have been more compressed, we could have had more progression of maybe the human character, or just a little bit more something, because we just got a lot of the repetitiveness, but it was still, it was still interesting at the end of the day. So that's why I still gave it a 7 out of 10, and not a worse rating. Uh, next up is Red She-Hulk number 61. This continues to be a book that I am consistently surprised that, that I enjoy it as much as I do. Um, of all the Marvel Now books, this was definitely not one I was like, I'm going to read this. This is going to be great. But it is. It's great. I enjoy every issue. Uh, this issue has Red She-Hulk kind of being a bit more crazy. Um, and then I love how Machine Man is written here. Much more Machine Man than Aaron Stack as who's shown in Next Wave, but we learn more. This is basically the revelation issue. We see more of uh, uh, Bet- Betty Ross um, going, for, realizing that she's actually become this uh, savage version of herself, and how she always kind of feared that. Uh, how she originally, how she lost her sword, her big ass sword that she had, uh, backed her in Defenders. How she kind of ended up finding out about the character that was in the last issue. How she found out about what was going to happen with uh, all these new super soldiers and why she's opposing it. This was the revelation issue where we got the backstory that kind of uh, why the character has been propelled along this path. I thought it was um, actually a really solid information issue. It kept, it was still interesting, even though it was an info dump. Um, and I, I liked how she Red She-Hulk was written here. I'm not a big fan in, like, when they first made... Red She-Hulk into this, like, in sorry, Betty Ross into Red She-Hulk. I wasn't necessarily a huge fan of the idea. That being said, it's actually pretty cool um, in terms of how they're writing her here. Again, I would not have expected that I would have felt this way, but it's actually pretty good. So Jeff Parker wrote this. This is Hell Hath No Fury Part 4. The artwork was by Carlo uh, Pegulan and Wellington Alves. They actually did do a fairly good job of splitting the book. I don't know what the makeup was in terms of which pages were which, but um, it's got a very consistent visual tone, even though there are some differences in the artwork. So this was a great read. I actually enjoyed this a lot. Um, my brother-in-law scoffed when I said this was a good book. and I'm like, when I pick this up in trade, I'm going to hand it to you, and I expect you to read this, and I hope you enjoy it, because I have. And I, again, I didn't expect to, didn't really think I would, 
but it's been a good book. So I gave this an 8 out of 10. Again, once again, that is one of my favorite ratings to give, apparently. Uh, next up is Savage Hawkman number 15. This was an unlikely book that I would end up enjoying. Um, just because, as I've noted before, I haven't read a lot of Savage Hawkman. Um, that being said, it was actually kind of enjoyable because it... This is going to sound really mean, but like it didn't make me think a lot, but... The plot's by Rob Liefeld. The script is by Frank Thierry, who I absolutely adore. Like, I love his scripting. Like, his writing in general is really good. Pencils by Joe Bennett, who I really enjoy as well. That being said, this is the least Joe Bennett I've ever seen in terms of his art. Um, usually it's got a lot more polish to it. Or maybe it's just the inks. Uh, but, like, there's something there was something weird about the artwork in that it, it didn't quite look right. And there's a few shots of Deathstroke, which didn't look right at all. Like, he, his face, like, his... It's almost like the the colors were done correctly, or it almost looks like he turned his head all the way around, I, or I guess and you're only seeing part of his part of his head because of the the coloring on his mask. Uh, that being said, like this is a relatively simple issue. You have Hawkman and Deathstroke fighting off these uh, these attackers because and Deathstroke is only teaming up with Hawkman because he wants to find out more about the Nth Metal in his in his own in his own armor. Um, and uh, Hawkman is now treated as a as a traitor from his own people. And then he ends up being brought before Shaira. Um, this was actually really enjoyable. I really loved what was going on here. Uh, not love, sorry, that's the wrong word. But I did enjoy it a lot. It was a strong issue, and it's Savage Hawkman. I did not expect to enjoy this. I think the fact that it was written by a, a really competent and enjoyable writer definitely made it easier to swallow, because I think that if it had been by Liefeld, I wouldn't have been able to enjoy it to the same degree. Um, but generally speaking, this was enjoyable. I... I I did like it. Again, you're having Frank Thierry and Joe Bennett on on, on both uh, write, writing it or scripting it rather, and artwork. So that's at least a strong team. So I'm not. I shouldn't be as surprised that I enjoyed it, but I did. I gave it a seven out of ten. It was fairly solid. It wasn't the best issue I'd ever read because again, it doesn't necessarily make you think. But I don't need to think about every book, and I think that's what some books need to do. Is they just need to embrace the concepts and just have a fun time with it, and not necessarily. Be worried about giving me the the darkest storyline, or the most serious, or you know the or the like the the most uh, complex. Like sometimes you just want to see some winged Thanagarians fight against Deathstroke and Hawkman, and that's okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there is a market for that. So I give this a seven out of ten. It was enjoyable. Uh, next up is Talon number three. I'm still not a huge fan of the costume. I really enjoy the series though. It's really strong narrative. Uh, I like the main character a lot. Um, this issue was kind of interesting. We get some more backstory on, on the character of, uh, Calvin Rose, um, and his ex, I guess his ex-girlfriend or, uh, and it's actually a really complex issue, but I really enjoyed it. It was co-written by Scott Snyder and James Tinian the fourth. I think it's Tinian, not Tinian. I can't remember the pr- pr- correct pronunciation. Uh, the artwork is by Guillaume March, who I think does a much better job here than he ever did on Catwoman. Uh, when he started in the New 52. Um, I mean, this issue, there's a lot of setup and a lot of backstory, so there's not as much forward momentum. But I think we're getting a greater sense of, of the of Calvin Rose's, uh, his own backstory, characters he could end up teaming up with in the future, So and not just him and the old guy he's teaming up with. So I, I think there's a lot of potential in this book, um, and the artwork is extremely, extremely enjoyable. And I like the... You know, this book, in a lot of ways, feels like what Gambit should have been. Gambit should have felt a little bit more like a romp, 
Um, and having kind of a, a, this cool kind of character with, you know, mysterious backstory. I mean, Gambit's not as mysterious now, but, you know, we, we don't quite know about his backstory and, you know, what, what are all of his intentions, but we have an idea of how he wants to play things and, um, you know, and just the way that they're going to do like basically like a bank heist. I, it just felt very Gambit-ish without it being a Gambit book or even a Marvel book. And it felt more Gambit than Gambit's been. Uh, although the last couple issues of Gambit have felt more Gambit-ish than the, I think, issues two to four, which felt very something else and not something I enjoyed reading. Um, but overall, I gave this an eight out of ten. I did enjoy reading it. I didn't expect to enjoy Talon when it was originally announced. I, I didn't wasn't sure if the concept had a lot of legs. I wasn't sure if I liked the costume, which I'm still not really sure about. But um, the concept, the core concept, has actually been really interesting in the way they've been writing it. So I really, I really dug it. 8 out of 10 all the way. Uh, next up is Teen Titans number 15. This is part of the Death of the Family storyline with the Joker coming back and uh, causing some problems. Um, this is an interesting issue. And I gotta say, I don't think I read the last issue of Teen Titans, but this issue kind of jumps right in. It's plotted by Scott Lubdell, who I guess also still writes uh, Red Hood and Their Laws. Uh, dialogue is by Fabian Nassiza. Uh, pencils by Brett Booth. This is the n- not as Brett Boothy as it could be. Man, I keep using people's names as like as as adjectives and that's not right the uh, the first page there's a lot of glamour shots of uh batgirl that being said he does a good batgirl i mean she looks really great here and i love how this issue is basically uh told by the narrative of tim drake who is captured by the joker and he kind of knows that um batgirl is the person they'll turn to because it's the only name in his phone uh, and the teen titans will go to her for assistance and he kind of knows how that'll break down but joker is smarter than them and uh he knows what that that's kind of that the Teen Titans might come into play, so he's kind of planned for that in advance, and is able to use the Teen Titans to help uh, bring his um, his reign of terror more into the forefront. So he's being able to poison more people with his toxin by uh, by Kid Flash running around and not realizing that he's been he's basically being able to carry uh, this infection to everybody. Um, even the 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 Joker and how he. Everything about the Joker and how he's written is much smarter than it ever has been. This is uh, a, the way they they write the character here. Uh, this is a he's definitely has a lot in line with the Scott Snyder version, which is good because it's the same storyline. Uh, so he's he's just he's one step ahead of everyone else. He's he's not dumb. He's smart, and the way he kind of plays around with Tim Drake and he knows what Tim Drake is thinking. Um, this is really really cool. This is a really interesting read. I don't really know who these Teen Titans are. Um, obviously, I know Kid Flash and Wonder Girl, although I don't really know these versions of them all that well. Um, but no, this was a pretty good read. And then at the last page, we realize, wait a minute, this is going to be continued in uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws number sixteen, uh, as uh, Death of the Family kicks in high gear because we have Arsenal and Starfire uh, show up to uh, rescue the Teen Titans. Although Red Hood isn't nearby so i guess he's i forget what happened in red hood and the outlaws 15 but i think he's already busy with the joker's plans um i give this an 8 out of 10 it was a surprising 8 out of 10 uh i think death of the family is elevating everyone's game across the batman line um every single tie-in for the most part has been quite enjoyable uh even the ones that have stretched the credibility a little um i'm looking at you Batgirl. not sorry not Batgirl. uh catwoman that book didn't really need to be tied in that being said, it wasn't it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't as good as the rest. Whereas most of them have been really strong and really enjoyable. Like I've been surprised by how much I've liked them. Uh, next up is Ultimate Comics Spider-Man number nineteen. 
Now this surprised me because I expected the artwork to be done by David Marquez. Instead, we have the return of Sarah Pacelli, um, which was interesting to me because as much as I love Pacelli's artwork, this did not seem like her strongest. In fact, this felt a little weaker than her artwork had been previously. But part of this might be that I got really used to David Marquez. Marquez's style was stylistically not that different than Pacelli's. But, um, but very enjoyable. That being said, this issue was really good. Um, we have Maria Hill uh, investigating the death of Betty Brandt in the recent Point One issue. So I'm glad that we're circling back to that. And it's actually, thank God, 18, I think it was 18, 18.1 or 17.1, whatever number the Point One issue was, it actually did what it promised. Point Ones are supposed to launch, the, be a good jumping on point for the new kind of era of stories that they're going to be telling. That's exactly what this was so far. You had... Then we're showing up at the end and killing Betty Brandt. You'll see Betty Brandt doing an investigation as to who Spider-Man was. Here we're seeing the fallout of that. Betty Brandt's dead. J. Jonah Jameson kind of explains to Maria Hill uh, how he feels about Betty Brandt and what she was doing and kind of being a bit of a fame whore um, and how he would never want to publish who Spider-Man was and he learned a lot from the death of Peter Parker um, and from the, the whole ultimatum experience. Um, it's just really well written how J. Jonah Jameson is written here. I just said well written twice in this one sentence, so please don't be upset. We're also seeing more about uh, Miles Morales' dad, who's dealing with the exposure, uh, unfortunately, from being a, a hero, even though he doesn't want to really talk about what he did to the Hydra agents. Um, really cool stuff. I really, really dug this book. Great artwork. I'm excited to see where this Venom storyline goes. I haven't really... F I've jumped off Spider-Man after Ultimatum, so I missed the first run of Ultimate Comic Spider-Man. So I don't really know what happened from then up until the storyline before uh, Peter Parker died. I've read everything else, so I'm not really sure what Venom's status quo is, but I'm interested to see what it is or how he plays into this book. Um, I also like the idea that uh, Gunke, or Gunke, I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce uh, Miles' friend's name, uh, is going to help him build, like not build, but uh, create the web fluid. And I like the idea that he runs out, but they have the formula, and now they just have to figure out how to actually use it to create more web fluid. It was actually an interesting way of kind of, of uh, showing how Morales, Miles Morales is growing as well, because he had to deal with that classic, you know, oh no, I'm out of web fluid, what's going to happen? Though this one doesn't have anything. He has to actually create it at home before he'll be able to go out and use it again. But I also like that he's he's worried about, like, how do I web swing? And it's so difficult because you have to know five steps in advance how you're going to be swinging. Um, so I, I really like that concept. And, man, Miles Morales is such a good version of Spider-Man. I'm really enjoying how he's being written by uh, Bendis. And, you know, two years ago I would not I would have thought, eh, I don't know if that'll work. I don't know if I really care. I'm really digging it. Ultimate Spider-Man is a fantastic book, and it can, uh, Miles Morales is a great character, and really, you should be reading it if you're not. Uh, I gave it an 8 out of 10. I know, I know, big surprise. Actually, sorry, I'm wrong. I gave it a 7.5 out of 10. Sorry, I was reading my the wrong review. The wrong rating, anyway. Um, the artwork wasn't quite up to the snuff. It felt a little rushed. It was not as polished as Sarah Pacelli is capable of, and I've ex I've come to expect a slightly higher degree of quality in Ultimate Spider-Man because I've been so spoiled by it, basically. Um, so I give it a 7.5 out of 10, but still a very high-quality book. This brings us to our, our uh, last comic that we're going to talk about this week, which is Venom number 29. Uh, this is written by Colin Bunn, with pencils by Tony Silas, with inks by Nelson DeCastro, with Terry Pallet. Um, this felt like a, a good palette cleanser. Um, the book has kind of drifted a bit um, ever since Bun took over. I wasn't a big fan of the Demonic storyline, which followed up on the Circle of Four. Um, the Minimum Carter storyline kind of 
didn't really work for me at a lot of different levels. Uh, I'm excited to see where Venom goes now that he's going to be relocated into Philadelphia. I hope it's a permanent move. I think it is. Uh, this issue sees Venom up against the UFOs. Uh, we briefly saw last issue. Did, it didn't seem to go so well when he showed up. Um, so this issue, it's kind of Venom doing some detective work, trying to figure out uh, where Katie Kiernan might be. Uh, he finally finds her, and then he he, uh, he brings um, sorry, he brings Valkyrie along with them, and then they take on the UFOs. And then when the things seem their worst, uh, the symbiote seems to kind of rise up and decide to take a take hold and say, you know, you may not be able to do things, but I can do something. Um, so I'm excited to see where we go from here. To be honest, I mean this was um, a very solid, enjoyable issue. We got to see a lot of Flash Thompson. Uh, kind of good, great characterization of him kind of uh, trying to find out what's going on. We have backstory as to what the UFOs are doing in Philadelphia. Um, and also, and so you have a, a clear case of, you know, Venom has to save these hostages. So he's going to team up with Valkyrie to do so. Uh, I really liked uh, his, his overall, his fight sequence with the, the UFOs, with the Valkyrie. Um, just, and his internal monologuing, and like he has to stop treating it like a game. He uses a lot of football metaphors. He has to take it more seriously. He's a superhero. He understands why he's doing it. He's trying to make it easier to deal with the life and death nature of his job. But at the same time, like he has to take it more seriously because he is a hero and people are depending on him. Uh, lives depend on, on him being able to pull through. Um, this is actually a really solid book. and ho- You know what? I'm really hoping that this is a, a sign of things to come, that this book will become uh, more consistently enjoyable because even when, with Remender on it, it at times could be remarkably inconsistent. It would you'd have these really strong months, and you'd, then you'd have a circle of four, or something would kind of go off the path, and yet you also had a lot of different art teams as well, or at least it felt that way. So the book always felt a little bit inconsistent in tone overall. Although I still enjoyed the general nature of the book, so I'm excited to see where it goes now that Colin Bunn hopefully will be able to do what he wants with the character on his own in Philly. He's not worried about Betty Brandt. He's just kind of being able to chart his own course. Hopefully, it's a good one. Uh, I give it an 8 out of 10. Again, big surprise, but that's my favorite rating. Uh, so that's everything we looked at this week. Now, the books that didn't get a chance to review, uh, they include All-Star Western, 15, Fury of Firestorm, The Nuclear Men, number 15, I, Vampire, number 15, Joe Cooper Presents, number 3, Justice League Dark, number 15, Punisher Nightmare, number 1, and, and Superman, number 15. Um... I just, a lot of these books, to be honest, like, I had no real interest in reading All-Star Western, even though it's part of the Black Diamond storyline. Um, Fury of Firestorm, I don't really have any interest in that either. I Vampire, I haven't started reading it really yet, so I don't have no real interest in reading that. So I apologize that, you know, I'm not doing a review of that book. Joe Cooper Presents, I actually didn't, wasn't able to find a copy. Justice League Dark, I read a few issues. I, well, I'm not a huge fan. I flipped through this one. I decided to give it a pass. That's why I didn't end up reviewing it. Punisher Nightmare, I just flat out ran out of time and superman i do not care about this hell on earth storyline i'm not a huge fan of kenneth Rockefeller's artwork on superman um it's the combination of those two factors if it was just one or the other i could have i probably would have read it but because it was both i was like you know what i'm gonna take a pass so thank you for joining me for uh, episode 41 of comic shenanigans uh so we're, this was the episode where we looked at the books that came out january the 2nd uh, as i said uh, upcoming episodes include episode 42 hopefully going up thursday this week um, usually goes up Wednesday, but I'm going to push it back a, a day because, or most likely we'll be pushing it back a day because uh, this is, this episode is going up late on Monday. 
uh, the seventh. But uh, episode forty-two will be the ABCs of Awesome, which I'll be uh, doing with my wife Kelly Chapman. Um, basically, she's compiled a list of uh, her ABCs of Awesome, which I have not actually seen, uh, and we're gonna go through it over the air, and hopefully, it'll be a fun episode. As she puts it, uh, there've been a lot of episodes focusing on the comics, but less on the shenanigans. So she wants to bring it back to the shenanigans with some comics included, of, of course. Um, after that, issue uh, episode forty-three will be going up next week, on, hopefully on the thirteenth. That'll be the review episode for January the ninth comics, and then uh, episode forty-four. As I already mentioned previously in the podcast, I'll be uh, partnering up with my regular guests, uh, Nathan Strzok and Paul Scores, to give you the spotlight on Spider-Man Dying Wish uh, podcast, where we'll be looking at the Dying Wish storyline that was in Amazing Spider-Man 698-700, to as well as Avenging Spider-Man, I guess, 15.1. That'll be going up on the, I guess, the 16th of uh, January. Now, unfortunately, that episode was already recorded, so it was recorded before Superior Spider-Man. So, unfortunately, we won't have any further comments to make based on Superior Spider-Man, but I'm sure at some point in the next few months after the initial arc of Superior Spider-Man is completed, we'll probably revisit and uh, see how we feel about it. Um, uh, I know, I, I believe I'm the only one of the three actually purchasing the issues, as Paul is going to be switching the trade, and Nate just kind of waits for my singles or trades to read. So, uh, hopefully, we'll be looking at it over the next few months. Again, thank you for joining us for this episode. If you want to send us a, an email, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, or you can like us on Facebook or send us a personal message there as well. Um, I've been a little bit lax on responding to messages on Facebook, so I do apologize, but uh, it is still a good way of contacting us. Uh, you know, it was the holiday season. These things happen. But thanks again for joining us. Uh, I am Adam Chapman, your host, and uh, we'll be sure to catch you next time. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.